Have you ever wondered who was the master of the embroidered foliage? Or wanted to know what it was like to be at Andy Warhol's factory? Freeman's America's oldest auction house tells the stories of these and other curious objects. Discover Pennsylvania's craft legacy. Go behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions and uncover your passion for collecting. Visit freemansauction.com to sign up for their newsletter and get these stories and more delivered straight to your inbox. Hello, welcome to Curious Objects. Our subject today is Friedrich Hayek, born in 1899, died in 1992. Uh, He was an economist whose theory that market prices are an efficient mechanism for individuals to communicate information is a cornerstone of modern economics and led to Hayek receiving the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1974. He was born in Vienna and split his career between London, Chicago, and Freiburg. In 1947, he organized the Mount Pelerin Society, a group of classical liberal economists who developed arguments against socialism. Although he once wrote an essay titled Why I Am Not a Conservative, uh, nevertheless Hayek's ideas about self-regulating markets have deeply influenced economic policymakers like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. He is often described as a countervailing force to the ideas of John Maynard Keynes, and there's even, I don't know if you know this, uh, there's a YouTube rap battle between the two of them, which is very entertaining. Hayek is one of the most widely cited economists of all time, and now his personal effects are being offered for sale at Sotheby's in London. To mark the occasion, I'm speaking with Gabriel Heaton, a specialist at Sotheby's who has organized the sale, and Bruce Caldwell, professor of economics at Duke University and the general editor of the collected works of F.A. Hayek. Gabriel, why are these items coming up for sale now? They're coming from the family, um, and it is for personal reasons. It, it, it's an appropriate time for them to be mm-hmm. um, to, to, to be disposing of them. But it's all all coming directly from 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 the, from the family, from his descendants. One thing that we did that we did bear in mind, and that has you know, it did affect our timing here somewhat, is that is that it's the 75th anniversary of the publication of the Road to Serfdom in March of this year. Could you tell us a little bit about the marquee item of the sale? What What is that object? Yeah, the, the, the key item in our sale is the original Nobel Prize, uh, the, the, the medal awarded to uh, Hayek in, in 1974. Um, and like all of these prizes, it, it's, uh, it, it's a gold medal. Um, but also, there are a couple of other items that, that come with it. So there's, uh, they always have uh, a bespoke box. And then they come. They come with a citation, uh, with uh, which is a calligraphic document, and then also a watercolor as well by a um, by, by a Swedish artist. So obviously the key item is the medal, but then you know there's, there's there's a small kind of package of items there. Now, for those of us who have never received a Nobel Prize, um, how, how large is this piece, and what does it weigh? It's about three and a half inches long, um, solid gold. And um, it is obviously engraved engraved on both sides, um, with in the distinctive manner of the Nobel Memorial Prize for Economics. Now, the e- each of the prizes that have different engravings on them. Oh, I see. Right. Um, but the the value of this object, I would imagine, is significantly higher than the value of the gold that makes it up. Um, could, could you tell us what uh, what do you think this piece is worth? We're putting an estimate of four to six hundred thousand pounds on the 
on the on the Nobel Medal. Now, Bruce, very significantly more than it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce, what was the what was Hayek's key insight that the Nobel Prize was recognizing? Well, they recognized him for uh, two contributions uh, early in his career. He made contributions to monetary economics. This was during the period when he and John Maynard Keynes engaged in the battles that are represented uh, in the rap video that you that you mentioned. And the other uh, uh, contribution that the uh, Nobel Committee identified uh, was his contribution to social theory. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize together with uh, Gunnar Myrdal, who was a uh, um, much more left leaning so they had one nobel winner who was uh, a free market advocate the other one who was an advocate of of uh, planning of various sorts and government intervention of various sorts but both of them in addition to being uh, economists had written in areas outside of economics Uh, hayek uh, contributed to political philosophy with books like the constitution of liberty or law legislation and liberty he contributed to social science methodology he actually even had a book uh, called The Sensory Order that was on theoretical psychology. So uh, they were recognizing, the Nobel Committee was recognizing the fact that here are two economists, but they're economists who did something more than economics, uh, that they tried to study uh, social uh, and uh, cultural and uh, political uh, aspects of uh, a society in a way that uh, that a straight economist who's simply uh, building models of the economy uh, going beyond that that sort of contribution. Gabriel, how do you determine the value of an object like this? You said four to 600,000 pounds. Um, wh- wh- where does that number come from? Well, the um, value of Nobel Prizes is very much in the, uh, in, in the recipient and really where the, where the recipient sits in, in our culture today and how much how much he or she means to people. So they do vary enormously in value, and, and they are, it is quite hard to predict how they will, how they will perform um, at auction. But Hayek is someone who has been so key to, um, to our kind of economic and political thought in, in, in recent decades and is cited so much um, by, by a range of people and, and, is, and is very much at the heart of a, of, a, of a kind of economic and political movement that has been hugely influential. Uh, so that's why we think that it, he is someone who will be um, who will be really treasured by people, and uh, so that there will be strong competition for um, for what is really the ultimate public accolade for his thoughts. If it does sell in the range of your estimate, is that um... Will that be a record for a Nobel Prize, or uh, or are there others that have gone for even more? Uh, there are others that have, that have gone for even more. The um, the record is is the James Watson um, Nobel Prize, which sold for I think it was around three million US dollars. But the, the, they they they're not very easily um, comparable. Now, Bruce. Um, as Gabriel insinuated earlier, um, Hayek is a politically charged figure and is sometimes associated with various um, political controversies. Um, his his career, I think it's fair to say, was defined, at least as we see it, by um, intellectual debates. Um, 
what was what was the nature of those debates? Could we dive into that a little bit deeper? Um, what were what are, what are the controversies that um, define Hayek as an ideological figure today? Sure. Um, I will just I'll, I'll do a little self promotion and and let you know that if there are people who want to know more about Hayek in a very painless way, I've actually I gave a talk that was taped at Clemson University and it's on my website at Duke University about the life and times of and ideas contributions of Hayek. But you're exactly right. Uh, this is a person who uh, is was of interest to me as an historical figure because he seemed to be at the right place at the right time, but he was always fighting with the people that he was around. So uh, in, in the early 1930s, he had the debate with John Maynard Keynes about uh, what the appropriate uh, uh, policy should be in terms of dealing with uh, the ma- what we would call macroeconomics, the macroeconomy today. He also engaged at that point in debates with people who were favoring uh, – Socialism. Uh, there has been a an increased interest today in democratic socialism. While he was debating people at the London School of Economics and elsewhere on the merits of socialism in the 1930s, it was in the process of, of those debates that he came up with the idea of how a market system within an appropriate set of other uh, social, uh, juridical, political. Uh, institutions uh, is uh, a remarkable device for coordinating uh, economic activity in a world in which knowledge is dispersed. That would be a phrase that could be used to uh, to describe it. Um, he also um, uh, talked about what he called spontaneous orders. Um, these are uh, complex phenomena. Theory of complex phenomena is something that he wrote about. And this is something that goes uh, – Indeed, far beyond uh, economics, his, his his work in psychology was also looking at how uh, the interaction of individual agents can sometimes create structures that are much uh, greater than and, and unintended structures that uh, that contribute to uh, whatever phenomena you're looking at. So, we, for example, within within the brain, we have individual neurons that are firing. They're not trying to accomplish anything, but the end result of all of that is is human consciousness. Uh, in, a, in a like manner, the, uh, the working of individual agents in a market, nobody intends to feed Paris every day. You've got millions of people, though, whose work, either from uh, directly feeding people through restaurants, but also people who, who are bringing food to market or growing the food, who are miners whose, whose end products end up being uh, silverware. All of these people are contributing to feeding Paris every day, although no one plans to do it. Those are the sorts of things that, that he was examining, and, and it, it's why actually his contributions are, are viewed as, as although, they're, as you say, obviously there are political elements uh, that are tied to this, but his understanding of how a market system works and, and uh, what to do when it fails to work, I think, are, are quite insightful. Among the other uh, Nobel Prize winners in economics, uh, I, I saw one paper one time uh, uh, by a, person, a scholar named David Scarbeck that said, of, of all of the Nobel Prize winners in economics, the ones who cite other Nobel Prize winners in economics in their Nobel addresses, Hayek was at the top of the list of people who other people cited. So that gives you some sense that he, he's not really just an ideological figure, although he's been embraced by certain groups in various ways. Uh, he's, he's a real uh, a scientist contributing to the science of economics. So for someone like Gabriel or I, who was not a professional economic historian, 
Um, where where might we look to see the effects of Hayek's work and ideas in uh, in today's politics and, and economy? So as you as you pointed out, he has a he has a paper that said, "Well, I am not a conservative." So he is somebody who believes in free trade. Uh, so those who would argue for uh, protectionism, he would oppose that. And indeed, in 1945, he, he had written uh, his most famous book, The Road to Serfdom. And he came to the United States thinking he was going to give a few lectures at universities. And because the book uh, went into a Reader's Digest condensation, uh, they turned over the, the whole uh, uh, tour to a professional touring company, and they worked him to death. He, he was uh, going for a full month with multiple multiple uh, presentations. Uh, but he he kept saying, "Look, I'm not <laughs> uh, I'm not a Republican. The Republicans seem to love him. The Democrats seem to hate him. There was all of the same sort of political uh, focus uh, that we might have today." And he would appear before a Republican audience and said, "Look, I just want to make sure you understand. Uh, yeah." Uh, this is not a partisan message. I'm for free trade, for free borders. He, he, the sorts of things that he would be for is the free movement of ideas, people, capital, goods uh, across uh, throughout a country and across borders. So at one point, he, when he gave a, a talk before uh, some uh, a Republican senator uh, got him in front of some of his constituents, and, and the, the person who reported on the talk said, the, the temperature in the room went down 10 degrees when, when Hayek started to talk about free trade because they uh, like free trade, but not for our not for our industry. You know, we right. for our industry, but but not free trade in general. In very in many ways, he's a he's a, a a mainstream economist in terms of his policy views. Uh, I, I would say. Now, Gabriel, um, there are some other items in this sale. Um, could you run us through uh, some of the more interesting pieces that are going to be available? Well, I, I think my personal favorite would be Hayek's uh, own copy of um, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. It's a an everyman edition published in 1911. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a valuable antiquarian book, but this is Hayek's copy with his um, underlinings and the occasional marginal note, notes in there. Um, which is just, it's such an evocative, um, it's such an evocative object bringing these two, these two great, um, economists together. But there are other things as well. There's things like his, uh, his writing desk and typewriter, both from the 1930s, both almost certainly is what he would have been writing, um, the road to serfdom on. These are things from his LSE, his LSE times. Um, and we have, Oh, there was a lovely item you mentioned. Again, very, very, in, in terms of individual value, very, very slight. But uh, we have these um, gold coins that were stamped in the late 1970s as a currency uh, that did not have government backing. But these are Hayek's, so they have his face on them. Uh-huh. And, of course, this is, this is all, all very topical today because these are basically a precursor of Bitcoin. Um <laughs> Um, so all sorts of treasures uh, and a few, so, a few other books from his library this, these sorts of things yeah that's it uh-huh. nice grouping of things enough to give a, a, a flavour of the man actually another thing which of course does that would be um, photograph albums so we have oh, right. three albums of his of, of, of his which really they trace his they trace his life right through his 
I mean, this is a man who, his childhood was spent in, in Vienna under the Austro-Hungarian Empire when it was one of the great cultural centers of the world. He then fights um, in the Austrian army in, in, in the First World War. He's, um, he's in, you know, he, he leaves mainland Europe in, in the early 30s just before um, the rise of, of, of the Nazis. He's spends the war the war in Britain. You know, he he leads a really pretty extraordinary life. And and then in 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 his old age he becomes this incredibly fated public figure meeting presidents and the Pope and um, Margaret Thatcher's favourite economist famously. Um so but there's it's there's a long journey that gets him to that, that place and, and items which trace that journey are, are are really quite special. Now I wonder if you could say another word about um valuing these objects. Let, let's take the, um, the his copy of the Wealth of Nations, for example. You mentioned that it's a book that's um, that's not particularly valuable from a collector's standpoint, uh, outside of its association with Hayek. But of course, it is associated with Hayek. Now, as as an auctioneer, how do you come up with an estimate for a, for an item like that? It's different from the Nobel Prize, where there are at least comparables. You know, other medals that have been awarded to other people and you can sort of go back and forth about who's more important. Um, but this is different, right? Uh, actually, uh, the comparables for Nobel Prizes, and they're not really hugely helpful. I mean, they're helpful in that there's clearly, there are benchmarks there which show that there is no reason why a Nobel Prize cannot fetch really quite substantial summit auction. But beyond that, they're not, the comparables are not terribly helpful because they're such different figures, different people who are, who are interested in them. And they're interested in each of the, each Nobel Prize winner for different reasons. Um, so actually, yeah, comps don't take you that far. And you're quite, but you're quite right with the, um, with, with the wealth of nations. There are two ways of going about it. I mean, you, you can, uh, value it simply as a book. And you say, okay, as a book, this is worth, you know, Actually, in this case, it wouldn't even be this, but you'd say it was, it's worth a couple of hundred pounds. You put it in at that, and then obviously you would expect it to go for significantly more than that because but you, you let the market decide the value of the, uh, of the, of the association. You can think, well, what, what do people pay for really good association books for kind of, you know, relating to, um, economics and political, um, political Theory and, and, you, and you reach you reach an estimate that way, but you always want to be on the conservative side for, uh, for for the for these sorts of items. You do want to allow the market to to um, to, to, to operate, and especially you want you want you know any auctioneer you, you want you want competition. You want you know because that's what that's what really that, that's what gets you the best prices in the end. Is, uh, is, so, is strong competition between between real bidders. What are what is the number that you've put on the uh, wealth of nations? Oh, sorry, it's three three to five thousand pounds. Let's take a quick break. First, I want to remind you that, as always, there are images of the objects we're talking about on the web at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast, and also on my Instagram at Objective Interest. And you can get in touch with me directly by emailing podcast at themagazineantiques.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for future guests. 
Thanks so much for your feedback. If you like the podcast, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We'll get back to Gabriel and Bruce right after this. Would you like to learn how much the most expensive American looking glass ever sold at auction went for? Or to find out if your collection is appropriate for sale? Freeman's, America's oldest auction house, has the answers. Discover how Thomas Aiken's Gross Clinic stayed in Philadelphia. Delve into the work of Wayne Tebow, the great draftsman. And much more on their website, freemansauction.com. From modern masters to French furniture, Freeman's takes you behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions, delivering the latest in art market news, events, and stories. Subscribe to their bi-weekly magazine and get it sent straight to your inbox. Visit Freeman's at freemansauction.com to learn more. Now, there there are other items in the sale, and um, I mentioned the Mont Pelerin conference. Um, Gabriel, there's a, there's a piece commemorating that conference in the sale, is there not? There is. There's, there's a small gold ingot that was presented to Hayek in, in 1972 on the 25th anniversary of the, um, of the conference, which is a, a, a lovely memento, actually, of, of this key moment in, in post-war um, economic and political thinking. And, um, and, and a nice you know, and a really lovely gesture to, to Hayek. Bruce, can you give a little context around uh, Mont Pelerin? What, what, what was it and why did it matter? Sure. Uh, the Mont Pelerin Society was a meeting uh, that took place uh, in Switzerland in 1947. Uh, Hayek was the person who organized the conference. It attracted people who in later years would become famous, people like Milton Friedman, uh, George Stigler, so these are members of the uh, University of Chicago Economics Department, uh, so the Chicago School of Economics, as it were. And uh, the way Hayek described the meeting was that he would go around to each country after World War II, and there was such enthusiasm for building a welfare state, uh, the beverage report in England in the 40s that outlined uh, the way forward, uh, he said there was very few people who, uh, like him, embraced classical liberalism, who were more in favor of, of a free market approach. So uh, he gathered people from uh, different countries uh, all over Europe. This is post-war Europe. Uh, he had a few people from Germany, uh, but mostly the States, England, um, uh, other places. And he saw it as a, as a place where people who had these similar views, although they disagreed with each other about the way forward, they, they agreed on certain basic principles, uh, you know, rule of law, uh, uh, trying to uh, create a society where people uh, have the maximum liberty, but also uh, within uh, a government framework as well. Uh, so they weren't, they weren't anarcho-libertarians by any means, but mm-hmm. they, were, they were going against the uh, kind of the grain of their times. Uh, and uh, it was actually quite successful in, in a number of ways in providing an intellectual framework for developing some of the ideas that, that Hayek, for example, would express in, in books like Constitution of Liberty. So would you say it was influential in, in, in terms of the, um, shall we say, the mainstream of economic thought in, in, in the latter half of the 20th century? It, it, so it was interesting in the way that it was influential. It was quietly influential. A lot of people don't know anything about the Montpellier Society. It's, it's not like they put out um, discussion papers or anything like that. It's, it's a meeting of, of individuals. 
but the ideas that they generated uh, certainly did enter into the mainstream, uh, particularly in the 19 uh, after the 1970s. Uh, you know, if you take a look at the at the uh, economic history of that period, you've got uh, stagflation, that is to say, simultaneously high levels of inflation and unemployment, low growth, and this was following the kind of the, the rise of Keynesian economics, where the idea was that government could uh, manage the economy, have full employment with low inflation, and, and exactly the opposite is what was was taking place. So, in England, in the United States, in other places, uh, these ideas suddenly had a, a resonance that they might not have had uh, during the immediate post-war period. So it's in that way that these ideas started uh, to spread. And then they had political, uh, uh, you know, representatives who would who would uh, engage them. Uh, often the the the, the theories and the, and the politics uh, weren't always in line to, exactly, but uh, but certainly in terms of the general influence in, in favor of of less uh, government intervention of deregulation uh, that certainly caught on and uh, and it it is obviously part of a of a an ongoing debate. And, and I have to point out that this was in 1972, so this was just when um, uh, stagflation was actually starting to uh, to ramp up. So although Hayek uh, early in his career uh, favored a gold standard, later he did not. And indeed, later in the 1970s, he wrote a book on the denationalization of money, competing currencies. Hmm. But the idea of remembering his, his contributions of founding the society by giving him this uh, this piece of gold was was to say, well, we need to have a, a secure currency, and the gold standard was something that at least at one time seemed to have worked pretty well. Gabriel, had you studied economic history at all before, or was this brand, brand a brand new subject for you? Um, it was it was pretty much brand brand new. I mean, you know, obviously, I was as I say, I was I was aware of him, and I was, but I was aware of him really more from a in terms of what I did know about political philosophy, rather than rather than the right, but it's one of the great pleasures of, of of my job is to discover new writers, new thinkers, and to and to just try and understand what it is about them that makes them so compelling. And when the gears started turning, um, and and the sales started to come together, uh, what what sort of um work were you doing to prepare for that and and uh to to uh, what what sort of research were you conducting um well it was a combination of things so um i needed to understand more about hayek and what uh what would draw people to hayek really i mean because i i, I knew the, the the politics with which he was associated but what i didn't know was how his uh, was about his thinking and how he uh, how he how he reached the conclusions that he did and what really struck me and what made me realize this is what draws people to Hayek is um, his questioning nature it's it's the way that he poses questions really profound questions about the nature of society and the nature of economic transactions he he looks at these questions and that's what takes him to the economics and the politics that, that um that we're maybe more familiar with that was a key thing for me um and then the other side of it was to look at the um the the items that the family had and to think well to sift through if you like and to work out what would be what would be appropriate for for, for auction and that, mm -hmm. that's very much mm -hmm. a collaborative 
business with with the with the sellers, of course. I, I want to step back from Hayek for a second and ask you about that. Are, could you give an example or two of of other areas that you've been uh, uh, thrust into, maybe without prior training or knowledge, and that you had to to sort through? <laughs> yeah, well, it does vary a lot. I mean, what I what I do quite a lot of of these very distinctive association objects. So items where the real the, the the value there is not in the in the object itself. It's about the story that the object tells, and the, and so and whether that could be, I don't know. Last last September, I was dealing with a copy of um, the novel Lady Chatterley's Lover that was used in a very very famous trial, um, an obscenity trial here in 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 England in in the beginning of the 1960s, and it was sort of one of these things that sort of triggered the permissive society. I mean, I've I've dealt with <clears throat> other other Nobel prizes, including um, the biologist um, Hans Krebs, who um, discovered something called the citric acid cycle, which is certainly something that I didn't know uh, anything about before. Um, well, I thought everyone knew about the citric acid cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's it's a wonderful pleasure to be to have that opportunity to find out about these about these very diverse subject matters. And as I say, it's you know it's not about becoming a a, a great specialist in that area obviously but but it is you know it's about understanding why people care right okay who do you think not specifically but but what what sort of buyer or collector do you think is likely to to buy the nobel medal and and what do you think that the piece is going to mean to that person i think it is very hard to imagine that it wouldn't be bought by someone who is deeply interested in Hayek and for whom Hayek's thinking does not mean a great deal. That's really the key. That's really the, that's really the key point. It's not about sort of someone who is a collector of, um, you know, Nobel prizes. You know, that is, it will be, it will be someone who, to whom Hayek chimes. It really means mean something to them. That, that'll be the thing that sells the, um, sells, sells the Nobel. Um, the, uh, who that would be, we will, you know, we will, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But what, what you can say is that there are a lot of people out there for whom Hayek does mean a great deal, including people with, you know, with, with substantial funds. So, mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's it's been a real pleasure. Um, thank you both. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I hope you've had a little bit of fun. It's it's been fascinating yeah, for me. I wish I had I wish I had three thousand pounds for that Adam Smith book. I'd like to see what high end got under fun. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, yes, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a love it's a lovely thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, that that will yep. uh, that that I think will probably do very well. Yeah. There you have it. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe took something away from it. Once again, you can see images at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast or on Instagram at Objective Interest. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti, and our music is by Trap Rabbit. I'm Ben Miller. See you next time. <laughs>